seated. Even many non-Christians know the name Judas Iscariot. Partially, this is due to the greater biblical literacy of former generations. But literary and cinematic references to Judas continue, even today, as the archetypal traitor. Before there was Benedict Arnold, there was Judas Iscariot. Brutus and Cassius' betrayal of Julius Caesar occurred historically earlier, but arguably Judas has remained more infamous. In 2021, only 23 baby boys were named Judas in the U.S. In a weird statistical anomaly, that's the same exact number as 2020 and 2017 and 2016. Contrast that with the name Jude. In 2021, there were 2,491 baby boys named Jude. And in 2021, there were Also, 2,093 baby boys named Judah. Now, why do I bring these into comparison? Well, in Greek and Hebrew, they're all the same. Our English Bibles have chosen to separate the name Judas from the name Jude and from the name Judah. Jude and Judah are considered good names, while Judas is considered a bad name. In the Gospels and Acts, there are eight men named Judas Some of them are good guys, and some of them are bad guys. It was a very common name in the first century because of its connection with the tribe of Judah, a Hebrew name that means Yahweh be praised. When his parents named him Judas, surely they had wonderful things in mind for him. However, in the providence of God, his name takes on a terrible irony. Every time Judas Iscariot is mentioned in the Gospels, the writers specifically mention his betrayal of Jesus. Even when he is first mentioned in the lists of the 12 disciples that Jesus appointed as apostles, Judas is always listed last and his betrayal is mentioned. Thus, we readers cannot be surprised by Judas's actions, but we should recognize that all the other disciples were surprised, shocked even, when Judas shows up in the Garden of Gethsemane leading a violent mob to arrest Jesus. In Luke's introduction of Judas, number 12 in the list of apostles, in Luke 6.16, he describes him as the one who became a traitor. That way of putting it does help us see that he didn't start out that way. He became a traitor. He may be an example of what Jesus spoke of as thorny soil in the parable of the sower and the soils. I'd like to sketch what we know about Judas to remind us of the backdrop against which we need to read this story. He is referred to as Judas, son of Simon, in a few places, and he is often labeled with the title Iscariot. There's been much debate over the meaning and significance of this term. It's possible it could be a Hebrew title, Ishkerioth. Man of Kerioth. There is a location in the Old Testament referred to as Kerioth Hetzron. You can find it among the cities listed for the tribe of Judah in Joshua 15, 25. 
However, Judas is unlikely to be connected with this reference because the Hebrew word kerioth simply means villages. And so the reference in Joshua is probably to the villages conquered by the man named Hetzron. Joshua then tells us that Kerioth Hetzron was more commonly known as Chatzor. And so it's unlikely that the name Kerioth ever existed independently as a city of Judah, and therefore probably has no relevance for Judas. And besides, in Jesus' day, Chatzor, the proper name of Kerioth Hetzron, was a city in Galilee. Some have wanted to see this label as an indicator that Judas was different from all the other apostles from the beginning, that he was from Judah, whereas all the other disciples were from Galilee. This is unlikely speculation. I have my own speculative opinion, but I'm satisfied to say that there is not enough evidence to determine the meaning and significance of the term Iscariot as it's attached to Judas and his father, Simon, with any confidence. But I will say one more thing about the name Iscariot. Let us be careful about thinking that it's some kind of last name for Judas. In Jesus' day and time, they did not typically carry two names the way we do in the modern West. In one place, and only one place in the New Testament, we don't see the word Iscariot simply tacked on to Judas or possibly his father. In Luke 22.3, Luke uses the phrase Judas called Iscariot, similar to the way the New Testament sometimes refers to Simon, who was called Peter, which could possibly indicate that Iscariot should be viewed as a nickname, either given to him by Jesus or given to him by the gospel writers. Nevertheless, as we sketch his backstory, we should focus on the ways that Judas was just like all of the other disciples. Jesus gave to him as to the other 11 apostles, authority to cast out unclean spirits, authority to heal every disease, and authority to proclaim the arrival of the kingdom of God. Peter will later say of him in Acts 1.17, for he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Until Passion Week, the gospel writers never single Judas out for anything. Most of the other disciples are singled out in some way at least once. Of course, we get the most information about Peter, James, and John, but Andrew, Philip, Matthew, Nathaniel, who is also probably Bartholomew, Thomas, and Thaddeus, whose name Luke lists as another Judas, each have some place in the four Gospels where they say something or do something unique. Only Simon the Zealot and James, the son of Alphaeus, get no distinct attention in the Gospels. However, we are told that Jesus knew Judas would be the one who would betray him long before it happened. The earliest explicit indication is in John 6, 64, just after the feeding of the 5,000, which occurred at least one year before Jesus' final week. The only other clue we get into the character of Judas is in John 12, verses 4 to 6, which we glanced at a couple of weeks ago. It is John alone who tells us that Judas, who had been entrusted with the disciples' finances, was a greedy thief who was accustomed to stealing from their communal fund. Now, it would appear that John did not know that before the resurrection of Jesus. Perhaps the disciples examined Judas' records as they began to regroup after the resurrection. Or or perhaps Jesus informed John about this later on. Nevertheless, John only 
John only tells his readers this to deepen the contrast between Judas and Mary, who loved Jesus so deeply that she shattered her precious and expensive alabaster jar of perfume as an expression of her devotion. Here, perhaps we see the thorny deceitfulness of riches choking out and smothering the gospel of the kingdom that Judas had heard and even preached. But Jesus also makes clear that Judas's betrayal was prophesied in Scripture. Jesus began drawing out these scriptures for the disciples at the Last Supper. We read in Matthew 26, 24, how Jesus told the disciples, while Judas was still at the table, the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. The betrayal is among the aspects of what has been written of the Son of Man. Luke frames it even stronger. In Luke twenty-two twenty-two, we read Jesus saying, For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. And later, Peter will reflect back on this and say in, one, in Acts one sixteen, Brothers, the Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. The particular Old Testament verse in mind is most likely Psalm 41, 9 which Jesus quoted at the dinner table, according to John thirteen eighteen, Jesus said there, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Just a few verses after this, Jesus identifies Judas as the betrayer by giving him a piece of bread. But it seems like even this direct identification wasn't recognized by the other disciples even though this was in response to John asking Jesus to identify the betrayer. I'd like to draw our attention to this exchange for just a moment. Look at John 13, verses 23 to 26. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Notice the apparent seating arrangement. One writer describes the situation. I'd like you to take a look at it visualized up on the screen. The usual arrangement at such a meal was was to have a series of couches or pillows, each accommodating three people arranged in a U around the table. The host reclined in the center of the chief couch at the center of the curve of the U. The guests reclined on either side of him, leaning on their left elbow and eating with their right hand. John is most likely the disciple whom Jesus loved, So he's reclining directly next to Jesus on the same couch or pillow. Peter has to motion to John to get his attention, which tells us that Peter must have been reclining somewhere further away across the table. But when Jesus dips a piece of bread into the sauce, he can only hand it directly to the one reclining next to him. If Jesus is the host of the meal, then John and Judas are reclining at the honored positions at the table, at his right and at his left. That the host would serve 
a piece of bread to someone else at the table emphasizes the host's love and honor for that person. We're used to recognizing the fulfillment of Old Testament messianic prophecy in Jesus, but it seems that it's also true that we should see the enemies of the Messiah as depicted in the Old Testament. This kind of typology where King David's experience is repeated in Jesus' experience prepares us to recognize the enemies of King David foreshadowing the enemies of Jesus. Even when it comes to the need to replace Judas in Acts 1, 16 to 26, Peter saw biblical prophecy from the Psalms as his guide. In Acts 1, 20, Peter quotes from Psalms 69, 25 and 109, 8. Both of these Psalms are imprecatory Psalms, Psalms where David curses his enemies. The Greek version of Psalm 109 even uses the term diabolos, devil, to refer to one of David's human enemies. Jesus had used the, that term, devil, to refer to Judas in John 6:70. It's only Judas who needs to be replaced as an apostle. When James, the first apostle to be martyred, is executed in Acts 12, the apostles do not attempt to replace him. There is no apostolic succession. Judas needed to be replaced because the foundation of the church as the reconstituted people of Israel needed 12 apostles, not 11 apostles, and one who was an apostate. Thus, Judas is replaced not because of his death, but because of his apostasy. Judas' story is tragic in many ways. Nevertheless, it is part of the gospel we preach. In one sense, this part of the story, that Jesus was betrayed by one of his closest followers, highlights the credibility of the New Testament authors and their proclamation of the gospel. No one would make this kind of story up. For those hearing the story for the first time, it could sound like Jesus was an incompetent leader unable to avoid being duped by one uh, in whom he seems to have trusted. John's gospel makes it clear that Jesus wasn't duped, but nevertheless, the rest of Jesus' disciples were. As John MacArthur says, Judas was so expert at his hypocrisy that none of the other eleven ever suspected him. But he could never fool Jesus, nor can any hypocrite. The only thing worse than a villain is a friend who betrays. That was a long introduction. And I don't want you to think that this sermon or the passage we're looking at today is about Judas. It's not. As we consider the betrayal and arrest of Jesus, we see the one who is treated as a criminal who yet remains in full control, in total command of the situation. This passage, like all of Scripture, is about Jesus. So against this dark back, black, black backdrop of Judas's background, let's listen to our Savior's words and see how he maintains command by directing everything that happens by his words. As one writer observes of this episode, Jesus is the only one who does not act in it. He only speaks. And yet what he says determines everything. The passage falls open into three sections, all driven by and focused on things Jesus says. He addresses Judas, and then Peter, and then the crowds. Let's read the whole passage, Matthew 26, verses 47 to 56. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. 
Now, the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will not and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Now let's back up to verses 47 to 50 and hear how Jesus addresses Judas. He basically says, Judas, you are here for this. Judas arrives leading a mob authorized and outfitted with weapons by the chief priests and the elders of the Jews. Of course, the Jewish leaders are not coming out themselves. Remember, it's after midnight, there's a full moon, and Jesus and the 11 apostles are near the Garden of Gethsemane, an olive grove with a lot of olive trees covering out the light of the moon. John's Gospel tells us that Judas was familiar with this place because Jesus often took the disciples there. It's possible that Jesus had even mentioned during supper that they would go there after the meal. One writer suggests plausibly that Judas actually led the mob first to the upper room where the supper had been hosted, and finding them already gone, Judas then led them out to the garden. Most of the mob probably doesn't know who Jesus is, and so Judas has told them how he will identify Jesus for them. He'll approach him and give him a kiss. It's interesting to see that even here, Matthew refers to Judas as one of the twelve. In fact, Judas is the only disciple ever referred to with this phrase. I suppose it presses us readers to get the irony of what's happening. That the mob is armed suggests that they were prepared for armed resistance. It seems like overkill, but I wonder if the threat of force is intended to ensure that these 12 men, Jesus and the 11, don't get any crazy ideas that might cause a fight that might then draw attention from Roman authorities, even in the middle of the night. Nevertheless, they are treating Jesus as a dangerous criminal, a revolutionary. Jesus will comment on this in just a moment. In verse 49, Judas approaches. He says to Jesus, greetings, rabbi. Though Judas isn't quoted very often in the Gospels, it is interesting to notice that he never addresses Jesus as Lord. Rabbi is a respectful term, but in this gospel, Matthew has been careful to only have outsiders and unbelievers refer to Jesus as rabbi. The word translated greetings is a typical Greek greeting, but it can also be translated as hail, as in hail Caesar. It is the same word we'll see the Roman soldiers mocking Jesus with in Matthew 27, 29. Adding a kiss to this greeting, we're seeing hypocrisy at its absolute worst. At this point, Judas could have been honest. He could have just said, Rabbi, I've come to turn you over to the authorities. 
But the hypocrite continues to feign allegiance. He continues wearing the mask all the way to the end. Now, fascinatingly, from John's gospel, we know that Jesus actually stepped forward and identified himself. John doesn't mention Judas's kiss, so it's unclear whether Jesus stepped forward before or after Judas kissed him. But John's account makes it abundantly clear that Jesus is fully in charge of this situation. Jesus asked the crowd, whom do you seek? And then we read this in John 18, 5 and 6. They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. I'm not sure why exactly they fall to the ground, but it probably has something to do with his self-identification as literally, I am, revealing himself as the God of Israel, Yahweh. Nevertheless, he asks them again whom they were seeking, and they respond the same way, and the account then carries on like it does in the other Gospels. Judas's kiss has become emblematic of betrayal. English usage now includes the idiom, a Judas kiss. He could have simply pointed at Jesus. He could have walked up to Jesus and then turned to the crowd and said something like, Behold the man! Get him! Instead, he chose a token of deep affection to betray his rabbi. However, what's more important to see here is that Jesus didn't resist the kiss. He didn't recoil in disgust. He didn't step back away from Judas as he approached. He submitted to this shameless act. Commentator Dale Bruner rightly reminds us that the sickest form of human nature is fake discipleship. This is the warning edge of this passage. Don't follow in Judas's footsteps. If you're wearing a mask this morning, if you're faking Christianity, stop it. Take off your mask. Repent. Though you may fool every person in this building, you have never fooled Jesus. And if you continue wearing that mask, you will end up in the same place as Judas, eternally condemned. Jesus doesn't merely submit to this gross act of betrayal. He has a brief and cryptic word to say. In verse 50, the ESV reads, Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. We've seen this word translated friend twice before in Matthew's gospel. Most recently, it appeared in Matthew twenty-two twelve as part of the parable of the called wedding guests. The bridegroom found the guest who didn't have the proper wedding garment at the wedding feast, and he addressed him with this word. When we looked at that parable, I suggested that the word would have been said with a certain tone of voice, indicating the speaker's disapproval of the person being referred to, whereas In English, the word friend tends to communicate a closeness or affection. This particular Greek term actually connotes the opposite, distance and even rebuke. In the parable, the person addressed with this term was thrown into the outer darkness, representing final judgment in hell. Jesus is addressing Judas with this term rather than the normal Greek term for friend in order to shame him and to indicate the distance between them. Furthermore, Jesus' words are less expansive than our English translations. I've tried to give you a flavor of a literal understanding of what Jesus said in the outline. Jesus simply says, Hey, bub, you are here for this. 
Most of our translations add a command here, as in the ESV, do what you came to do. Or they might render it as a question, why are you here? But of course, Jesus knows why he's here. With these words, Jesus is essentially saying, all right, let's get this show on the road. It is only after he says this that the mob approaches him to lay their hands on him and arrest him. Thus, Jesus speaks, and then the arrest begins. But then everything goes haywire. Chaos ensues. Jesus will step into the chaos and speak again, telling Peter to put his sword back in its place. In verses 51 to 54, Matthew describes one of those who were with Jesus, drawing his sword and slicing and dicing, with the result that the high priest's slave loses an ear. Only John informs us of the identity of the sword swinger and the slave. It was Peter, and the slave was called Malchus. John also specifies that it was Malchus's right ear. It is interesting that Matthew, who tells us more about Peter than any of the other Gospels, and Mark, who supposedly relied on Peter's own eyewitness testimony for most of his Gospel accounts, neither Matthew nor Mark identify Peter by name here. John MacArthur suggests a plausible reason for this omission. Both Matthew and Mark wrote their Gospels early enough that if word got out about Peter's assault of the high priest's slave, he could still be arrested and charged, whereas John wrote his gospel after Peter was dead. Matthew uses the word behold at the beginning of verse 51, and this is parallel to a behold that unfortunately the ESV is left untranslated. There is a behold in Greek in verse 47, introducing Judas. You can see it in both verses if you're reading the New American Standard Bible. Matthew has put the word behold there and repeated it here in verse 51, I believe, to draw a connection between the sword swinger and Judas. As one writer observes, behold highlights the evil of the sword play, just as behold highlighted the evil of the betrayal. In this way, Matthew shows that a violent response to persecution is no better than betraying others to persecutors. Peter's use of the sword is not a contrast to Judas's betrayal. Matthew connects them as both acts of evil. The crowd has brought swords to arrest Jesus, and one of his own followers seeks to respond to their swords with his own sword, returning their evil with his own evil. I suspect Peter saw this as the moment to prove his loyalty. As he so brashly claimed before they entered the Garden of Gethsemane, he was ready to die with Jesus. So he draws his sword and seeks to land a killing stroke against the high priest's slave, probably the Jewish official who was put in charge of the mob. But Peter's a fisherman, not a trained soldier, so his sword thrust missed its mark, relieving the slave of his ear, but not his head. This kind of reaction is probably why the mob was so well armed. In Luke's gospel, before Jesus entered the Garden of Gethsemane, he had an interesting conversation with his disciples about their carrying swords. In Luke twenty-two thirty-eight, we learn that the disciples had two swords among them. Apparently, Peter carried one of them. Jesus seems to grant them a concealed carry license. While he may affirm their use of swords in certain circumstances to defend themselves or to defend each other, he does not affirm their use of a sword in this situation. At some point in the midst of his correction of Peter, Jesus heals the slave's ear, according to Luke's account. 
MacArthur uniquely notices that this is the only recorded example of Jesus healing a fresh wound in the Gospels. And MacArthur adds, in a sovereign act of miraculous grace, Jesus undid Peter's damage. But Matthew focuses on Jesus' words to Peter. He issues a direct command. He tells Peter to put his sword away. He doesn't tell him to throw it away or get rid of it entirely, but he insists that now is not the time to be drawing swords. As one writer observes, true disciples of Jesus do not seek to advance or impose God's will on others through violent means. Unlike the zealots, whose philosophy ingrained in them the value of using violence, especially in the service of the Messiah when he comes, Jesus makes it clear that using violence to defend the Messiah is totally out of place and unnecessary. Likewise, Jesus' words here surely indicate that pursuing the mission of the Messiah through violent means, whether armed warfare or through manipulative coercion, is doomed to disappoint our Lord, and ultimately, such means fail. As one early church leader once said, he whose word is a sword does not need a sword. To quote MacArthur again, Jesus' point was that personal violent action against even an unjust governing body is wrong. God has the sovereign right to overrule human governments, as he has done frequently throughout history, but no individual has that right. The word sword appears six times in our passage. But as Pastor Doug O'Donnell observes, Jesus desires that his church use a sword zero times. The sword is never to be used in propagating the gospel. Never. A violent church is a dead church. A cutting-off-the-ears church is a stabbed-in-the-heart church. Jesus grounds his chastising command to Peter with an interesting proverbial statement. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. In the first place... Jesus is simply seeking to help Peter recognize that if he continues pursuing violence in this moment against this mob, he will surely be overcome and defeated. However, this statement cuts both ways. It addresses Peter, who just landed a bloody blow, but it also addresses the sword-wielding mob. There may be a veiled reminder that this largely, if not entirely, Jewish mob may not have official Roman sanction to be out here utilizing such weapons. Rome did not approve of vigilantism and often executed those who would take the law into their own hands. Thus, this statement has great relevance for the immediate situation to all the listeners, disciples, and mob alike. And in recognizing this, we should beware of attempts to make this proverbial statement apply in more universal terms as some seek to use this line of Jesus to support pacifistic policies. Wayne Grudem summarizes really well here. Jesus was not saying that no soldiers or police officers should ever have weapons. Rather, he was telling Peter not to attempt to resist those who were arresting Jesus and would lead him to crucifixion. Jesus did not want to begin a civil uprising among his followers, and he certainly did not want Peter to be killed at that time for attempting to defend and protect him. It was apparently right for Peter to continue carrying his sword, just not to use it to prevent Jesus' arrest and crucifixion. In this context, therefore, all who take the sword will perish by the sword must mean that those who take up the sword in an attempt to do the spiritual work of advancing the kingdom of God will not succeed. 
If Jesus' followers attempted to overthrow the Roman government as a means of advancing the kingdom of God at that time, they would simply fail and perish by the sword. Jesus then offers another reason for Peter to put away his sword. Look at verse 53 again. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father? And he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels. Jesus trusts his father for protection. That is not his disciples' job. Jesus had the right to ask his father for angelic assistance, though we never see him doing that at any time. The father unilaterally seems to have sent him angelic help in the wilderness, following his temptation by Satan, and in the Garden of Gethsemane. But we never hear him asking his father to do that. But if he did ask, the father would send them all. Here, Jesus specifies 12 legions would show up immediately were Jesus to ask. It may be that he's thinking 12 legions, one legion of angels for each of the 11 disciples and one legion for Jesus himself. There's some debate about how many soldiers made up a Roman legion. The most common suggestion is around 6,000 soldiers. But some suggest that a proper Roman legion is made up of 6,000 soldiers plus 6,000 auxiliary troops. So Jesus is envisioning the possibility of either 72,000 or 144,000 angels that the Father could send in an instant to protect him from being arrested. I recall an occasion in the Old Testament in which one single angel killed 185,000 battle-hardened Assyrian warriors in one night. I suppose 12 legions of angels could instantaneously decimate all the armies of the world. But the most important reason Peter needs to put away his sword is that the scriptures must be fulfilled. The betrayal and arrest of Jesus must not, cannot be prevented. The sufferings of the Messiah, including his betrayal and arrest, all the way to his crucifixion, have all been prophesied in the scriptures. And the scriptures cannot be broken and must have their fulfillment. This is God's will. If Peter had been awake, he might have heard his Lord praying to his heavenly Father, saying, Your will be done. In the final section of our passage, verses 55 and 56, Jesus has some words for the crowds. He addresses the mob, essentially commanding them to fulfill the Scriptures. It is ironic that crowds are said to be seeking Jesus' arrest. Doubly ironic. First, it's ironic because generally when Matthew has referred to the crowds throughout his gospel, almost always they have been favorably disposed toward Jesus. Secondly, it's ironic because the chief priests wanted to arrest Jesus in the absence of a crowd. Thus, they have assembled a hostile crowd of their own with clubs and swords to come arrest the dangerous criminal, Jesus. Jesus rebukes his capturers. Look at verse 55 again. At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. They are treating Jesus as though he were a robber. Now, we've seen that word before in Matthew's gospel, and we'll see it again. Don't think of a common thief. This is a word for someone pursuing insurrection a revolutionary seeking to overturn a government, a violent criminal. The closest modern equivalent might be a terrorist. 
Jesus is being treated like a terrorist. Back in Matthew 21, 13, when Jesus overturned the tables of the money changers in the temple in Jerusalem, he had accused the Jewish leaders of transforming the temple from a house of prayer for all nations into a den of robbers, a headquarters for terrorists. Thus, Jesus had earlier compared the Jewish leaders with terrorists. And we'll see the two criminals crucified on either side of Jesus were robbers, terrorists. Likewise, Barabbas, whose cross Jesus will occupy, was a terrorist. The Jewish leaders have sent a violent mob to arrest Jesus, treating him as they would a terrorist. Jesus points out the irony and perhaps the hypocrisy of their seeking to arrest him in the darkness of night, utilizing a betrayer, an inside man. Jesus has been a public figure. He has been in the very headquarters of the Jewish leaders, the temple, over the course of Passover week. He would sit for hours teaching as many as would listen. Even his prophetic demonstration, overturning the money changers' tables, wasn't viewed as a particularly violent act. He and his disciples didn't stir up the crowds, didn't cause the kind of trouble that would look like an uprising of any kind. And yet, Jesus recognizes that they have long wanted to arrest him. In some ways, I suppose, he's shaming the mob. Perhaps he's reminding them that he and his followers are not violent criminals. In spite of Peter's violent outburst, the impact of which Jesus immediately reversed. In John 18, we hear Jesus commanding the crowds to let the disciples go free which they do. Then Jesus adds in verse 56 here, (coughs) but all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Among the many passages that point to this event, we might highlight a line from Isaiah 53, 12, where the suffering servant was numbered with the transgressors, a Hebrew word that might be better translated as rebels. The chief priests and the elders of the Jews might think that they are in control, that they have sent this mob, that they are gaining the upper hand over their enemy, Jesus. But everything is happening according to plan, God's plan. The prophetic scriptures provide the path of Jesus' life, including his betrayal and arrest and his treatment as a rebel, a terrorist. And at the end of verse 56, we see the disciples abandoning him just as the Old Testament scriptures had prophesied, just as Jesus had told them they would. Peter's bravado has been nullified. The striking of the shepherd has begun, and so the sheep are being scattered. Because Jesus commanded the crowds not to arrest the disciples, and since the crowds had only been authorized to arrest Jesus anyway, the disciples actually were not in danger. They didn't have to flee. But Jesus had said, and the scriptures had prophesied, so probably out of an irrational fear that they would be arrested, they abandoned him. What do we take away from this story? Besides seeing the darkness of the betrayal and arrest of Jesus, besides seeing the scriptures being fulfilled as Jesus says they must be, what's the big picture point? In an adaptation of the Apostle Paul's quotation of several Old Testament scriptures, I'll summarize the point this way. No one is righteous except one. Yes, I know that the line is found in Romans 3, 9, and it actually says none is righteous. No, not one. However, Paul is not reflecting on Jesus directly in that passage. Matthew, however, is showing us the same truth. 
We see the unrighteousness of the betrayer, Judas. We see the unrighteousness of the crowd in their violent aggression against Jesus. We see the unrighteousness of the Jewish leaders who sent the violent mob to arrest Jesus. We see the unrighteousness of Peter in his misguided use of violence to protect Jesus. We see the unrighteousness of all the disciples in their fearful abandonment of Jesus. Everyone stands guilty. As Paul says, all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, enslaved to sin, except Jesus. He alone is not guilty. He alone is the righteous one. Yet, he is the one being arrested. He is the one who is being treated as a criminal. As Isaiah 53, 11 and 12 said, some 700 years before Jesus was born, after his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will carry their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion, and he will receive the mighty as spoil, because he willingly submitted to death and was counted among the rebels. Yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. So, what kind of rebel are you? What kind of unrighteous person are you? Are you among the mob, hostile against Jesus? You probably wouldn't be here if you were. Are you Judas, wearing a Christian mask, pretending to follow Jesus, hiding your true self from others in this church? Back in Matthew 24.10, Jesus prophesied that there would be many in the church who would fall away and betray one another and hate one another? Are you acting hostile toward other professing Christians? Are you seeking to blackmail or manipulate or otherwise harm the reputation of others? It's time for the mask to come off. Drop the facade. Admit your unrighteousness. Admit your guilt. Admit your rebellion against God. Jesus died for the unrighteous. Jesus died for us while we were still unrighteous, while we were still sinners. He carried our guilt on the cross. He drank the portion of the cup of God's wrath for all the wicked who would trust him. So trust him. Or are you like Peter in his misguided zeal? Are you one who champions the cause and are so zealous that you'd become militant, literally or verbally, in the way you attack other people outside the church? Or do you have a flair for violence? Violence toward your spouse or your children? Violence toward those who disagree with you? Repent. Turn away from all forms of aggression and violence. See your Savior who submits to suffering and death who doesn't even verbally revile those who so violently abused him. As Paul says in Romans 12, repay no one evil for evil. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Or perhaps you're just one of the disciples overwhelmed with fear, ready to run away, ready to abandon Jesus because Christian life is too hard or too disappointing or too confusing. Look again at your Savior here. He was willing to be counted among the rebels, treated as a criminal. He volunteered to experience anguish for sinners 
in the place of sinners. In my place, condemned he stood. We're going to sing that line in just a moment, and the music team can go ahead and join me on the stage to prepare for that. In my place, condemned he stood, the old hymn says. I'm forgiven because you were forsaken, the modern hymn says. Maybe you've become jaded or cynical because you've experienced disappointment with Christians. You've been hurt or let down or perhaps even betrayed. Don't blame Jesus. Don't run away from Jesus in your pain. Run to him. In the same way that we saw Jesus last week running to his father in his fear, so also you can run to Jesus when you're hurting and disoriented. He is a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, because he has been tempted in every respect as we are, yet without sin. He bore the sin of many on the cross so that he could justify the many who would trust in him. The righteous one reckons the unrighteous to be righteous as he imputes his own record of righteousness to the personal accounts of every unrighteous person who trusts him. And he saw the light of life again after he was raised from the dead. Let there be no barrier between you and your risen king. We're going to take this opportunity to sing that classic hymn, Hallelujah, What a Savior. So please stand and sing together in response to this criminal who really is in command.